everybody. Welcome to J&J on Jazz, sponsored by Jazzwire. Uh, I want to introduce to you James, and James has a doctorate in jazz. This is Jeff, and Jeff is currently seeing a doctor, right? Well, I've, I've seen a doctor. He's not a jazz doctor, just kind of a regular doctor. So, But I love that we have that in common, James. That's for the best if you're seeing a real, a real doctor. That's, you do that. Uh, yeah, a jazz doctor, I, I need something better, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> when I, I'll tell you, when I finished my PhD, my, my dissertation advisor, the great tenor saxophonist, Dr. Nathan Davis, he said, listen, be careful where you put that doctor thing. Don't put that on your airplane ticket. Because they're, they're going to say, would Dr. Moore come to first class, please? And somebody's probably in trouble if you show up. So that was... Uh, yeah, somebody in first class needs a tritone substitute. I'm your man. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All right. Let's get moving here. And hey, I want to let you guys know, um, I want you to come visit us inside Jazzwire. The uh, address below, sign up and you get one week free inside Jazzwire. See all of the work going on, all of the posting, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world doing this work that we would love to get you uh, doing with us. So it's easy. In 20 seconds, you'll be in. Well, hey, uh, one of the things we want to do here in J and J on jazz is each month to feature uh, a legendary and important player on their birthday, and so May is the uh, birth date of Miles Davis. So that's a no-brainer for us to talk a little bit about Miles. I'm going to turn it over to you, James. I'm so pumped to talk about this. Um, when we were batting around ideas, we said May is is Miles's month. Absolutely, he was like a lot of trumpet players the first uh, the first trumpet player that really influenced me. And the album that everybody gravitates to, for good reason, is Kinda Blue, right? The most, the, the, the highest selling jazz album of all time, um, and it's just a landmark recording. If you don't have it, get it. It's, it's required reading, yeah? And we thought we would take his solo um, on, on the, the famous tune, So What?, and just really give it a listen and, and, and unpack a couple of our favorite licks from that solo and maybe even talk about ways that Miles is playing um, has influenced all of us when we're playing not just on modal tunes, but, but in just tunes in general, right? So we'll just take a quick listen to, uh, we'll say like the first chorus of the solo, if that's cool. Just a brilliant chorus, right? A, an amazing 32 bars. Starts off also with the greatest cymbal crash in history, right? And and Jimmy Cobb talked often about how when he hit that cymbal, and hits that cymbal, Jimmy thought, 
Oh, I've 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 hit it too hard, but man, it, that symbol rings forever. It's just so perfect. So there's something for everybody in this solo. We talk a lot here on J and J about harmony and melody and theory, but I want to talk to the drummers for just a second too, because not only can you get so much from listening to the way that Jimmy Cobb plays the ride symbol and his time feel, but the way that the the that Miles is playing with the time in response to Jimmy. He almost floats over top of it, right? So I'll just play the first eight bars. They really, really speak to me, and I love Miles' relationship to time. much going on rhythmically there. He's not just playing eighth notes mindlessly or automatically. He plays with the time in so many places. Really stretches that out, right? And then there's other times where he's super in the pocket. Those two eighth notes right there, back to back, those two D concerts, I call that like the holy grail of jazz. That that vibe, boot up, boot up. When I'm working with players, whether they're college players or, or adult learners or, or even pros when we're talking to each other, I always say, man, you, we've got to really focus on making that swing like crazy. And that comes from that relationship, I think, that Miles has with Jimmy Cobb and that real forward sort of approach he has to time, right? And the other thing I want to point out, um, as you get into this entire solo, uh, and Jeff, I'll be interested to know what you think about this, we use this tune as, as a way to teach um, improvisers how to play over modal tunes, right? And so the thing that we all often tell people is, well, to play this tune correctly, to play it in the spirit that, that Miles wrote it and these cats played it, you really need to stick close to the Dorian scale over both of these two chords. The tune's got... Two chords, effectively. 16 bars of D minor, 8 bars of E flat minor, and then 8 more of D minor, right? So if we're just using the Dorian mode... But there are so many instances in Miles' solo where he'll get outside of that Dorian mode. Here's one that happens a little bit later. So when a jazz educator says use the Dorian mode, eh, that's that's kind of oversimplifying. Miles just used a sound right there that uh, uses the leading tone, that natural seventh. It, it it's either a melodic minor or a harmonic minor, depending on how you're you're hearing that. So there are so many options over this tune, and Miles sort of telegraphs that to us. Um, it's beautiful playing. It's simply it's simple and it's intentionally simple. But there are these moments where he gets outside of that sound. So I guess Jeff, that'd be my question for you: is when you play on this tune, what have you taken from Miles's solo, and what do you find using um, that would be maybe outside of what we traditionally tell people to play on this tune? Does that make sense? Well, oh yeah, totally. Well, I love the observation and. Um, two of the notes that he tends to play that are outside. Now, if we add it up, he's playing 98% modally. He's playing a lot modally, but the spice, right? Mm -hmm. And so he does play that bluesy flat five that you played a couple times there, right? So in the key of D concert, that A flat, that kind of bluesy note. There's three, four, five times he does that. And then the leading tone. 
you pointed out that C sharp to D concert that you played in that nice ascending line. So, uh, so those are, you know, those are great notes to put in there. We don't just kind of do it willy nilly. Oh, I feel like a different note. Let me play something different. He knew what he was doing and he knew that that flat five would give him a bluesy vibe. And most of the time he used it, it was used with that spirit, I think. Yeah. Um, and then when he would play something more scalar, that leading tone, that C sharp to D kind of fit the bill nicely. So yeah, I'm with you. I think all those observations are great. For me, I love what he does in the second chorus. So people can, of course, put on the second chorus and listen to this themselves. I like how he begins uh, that second chorus. stuff. You know what that is? Every note, except for the very last one, it's a C triad. Yes! We're in D, right? We're in D minor concert, and the whole time he's playing a C triad. Five, three, one, and he's playing a triad. How dare he? <laughs> We're all playing good money for this, uh, right? And so, and, and then what does he do at the bridge of that chorus? When it changes to the next chord, he plays. So we could say he's playing a major triad built on the flat seven of the minor chord. On the D minor chord, the flat seven is C, and so he plays a C triad. When, when the uh, bridge goes to E flat minor, he plays a D flat major triad. What does he do when it goes back to the last A section? The same major triad built in the same place. So talk about repetition. Oh my God, the entire second chorus is kind of built on one idea with some other stuff thrown in there. Now Coltrane used that sound of the, of the minor triad going down to a, a triad pair, right? And so this, not on this tune, but Mr. PC. He plays something like that. So it's this same language, but Coltrane, Coltraneified it. He made it mm. into technique and velocity and this amazing shape. Miles did this totally too cool for the room, stretched out melodic version of it. So God, there's so much in the solo, but I remember seeing that and it's like, what is that sound? Like just each one of those notes was hipper than the next. And then realizing there was an architecture to think about all of them in one coherent sort of way. That's a big deal. So man, yeah. that's that's something that I took from this. But I, I really loved what you were talking about, the articulation, and especially how many times in this solo he ends, do that, yeah. right? That long, short, bebop articulation. Yeah, I got to spend some over. time with yeah. Dizzy Gillespie years ago in Canada. Dizzy Gillespie, mm. this was like 1985. He was in my hometown for a week and he like showed up at the community college I was at. And so I'm hanging out with Dizzy Gillespie for like days and days. And he wow. told this story. That's where the, the, the term bebop came from. Now this is Dizzy making up stories. It could be true or not, but I heard it with my ears from Dizzy. So I'm calling this true. That he was saying that, you know, a, a reviewer, when he and Bird are playing at Mitten's Playhouse in New York, heard them playing this angular, harsh, urban, non-danceable music. And, and, the, and the reviewer hated it. And he called it this awful bebop music. 
because it wasn't romantic and florid and lyrical and danceable. Interesting, right? And so the yeah, next day, yeah. Dizzy got on stage and said, yeah, man, we're going to play some of that bebop music that the reviewer liked so much. <laughs> I heard Dizzy tell the story. You can hear the you can hear that that Miles and 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 Cannibal and Train and all the cats on this record you can hear that they're coming out of that tradition right and so a lot of times I think we when we teach this kind of stuff in college it's important that that it's important that we understand where this music came from and that it's a continuum right this this is modal jazz well yes it is but this is just the next logical evolution in modern jazz it, that, that comes out of bebop. So you, you hear all those elements in, in the playing of these musicians. And so I think that's important for everyone to, to understand when they're checking out this tune, this record, and Miles is playing, right? You know, Jeff, you talk about articulation, um, we, we, you know, and, and, and one of the things I love the most about the solo too is the way Miles plays with vibrato. So you talked about starting that second chorus, right? I love the way that, yes, he plays that triad. For me, what my ears gravitate gravitate towards is his vibrato. And that little sigh on the end of that note. So yep. here's another, we talked about transcribing in episode one. As a trumpet player, when I learned this solo, I was like 12. A, a master musician named Curtis Johnson changed my life and, and, and gave me a tape of this record, right? When I learned this solo, I tried and still try to sound exactly like Miles. I want to match his vibrato. I want to match his articulation. I want to, I, I want my half valves to be exactly like his. And this is a great recording to practice that skill, not only because the solo is very direct and accessible, but the recording quality is so amazing. You can hear everything. Right, mm -hmm. so that's another thing I love the mo I love so much about this this tune and this solo and this record is you can get all the way inside of of this uh, of this recording. So it's just a masterful solo. I appreciate that advice about digging that deep into someone's someone's vibrato, someone's half valve. How did they bend the note? I was talking to a couple people on Jazzwire yesterday that um, they're getting to the point where they should start doing some transcription to get into the feel, the vibe of somebody's playing. And I was talking about that. Also, a drummer inside Jazzwire did an Art Blakey transcription. And so what I told that drummer is, man, see if you can figure out the sticking that he's using, using your mm -hmm. ears. Now that sounds crazy, to hear da ba da ba dot and know did he play left, right, left, right, left, or left, left, right, left, right, right? Was it a paradiddle? Was it single stroke? So a good drummer is going to know the difference between those. And an intermediate novice drummer is going to start learning that eighth notes aren't just eighth notes when you're a drummer. How you stick them changes how they feel and sound on the instrument, right? A half valve is different than a chops band is different than a grace note, right? They're different. So that's how we get inside these people. So uh, Miles's birthday, this is, man, I'm, I'm so glad we get to talk about this and, and that I get to uh, talk to a great trumpet player like James mm -hmm. about this stuff. So from this episode, um, everybody out there should have a month of work, a solid month of work, whether it's trumpet related stuff or listening to that crash cymbal for the first time, even though you've heard this 500 times whether it's that sort of triad pair harmonic thing, whether it's, wow, what's that leading tone they were talking about? 
There's so much in here. So I hope you guys dig into it. And of course, the place to dig into it is Jazzwire. There's no obligation. Come check it out for free. There's no messing around to get in in 20 seconds from now. Pause the video. 20 seconds from now, you'll be inside. So be excited to uh, see you inside Jazzwire and uh, see what we're up to for a free week. And uh, I think we'll leave it there. We'll uh, wish Miles, uh, you know, a happy birthday and thank him for all this incredible music. Beautiful. Hey, thanks for letting me share my uh, passion for this tune, everybody. Keep swinging. Absolutely. Take care.